Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr from Fizzle.co. And today we're talking with Matt Gartland. I should say up front that Matt Gartland is an old friend of mine. In fact, Matt was one of my early clients, to be honest, way back when as a web builder. And I built one of Matt's early websites. And here we are, fast forward maybe 10 years from then. And Matt is now co-founder of SPI Media. SPI Media is a new creation over at Smart Passive Income. Matt is co-founder along with Pat Flynn, and we'll get into all of that because there are some interesting dynamics there. We'll find out how Matt got involved at SPI. And with that, we're also going to talk about their new product, their new community called SPI Pro. We'll compare notes with Fizzle and talk all about building communities. So with that, Matt, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Corbett, for having me. Yeah, it had been a while since we caught up, and a lot has happened for you, so I'm excited to catch up on that. Here we are both in front of uh, drab-looking brown walls. I don't know what that's all about, but where are you in the world right now? I am technically in my basement. I like being down here for recording because this is actually a soundproof wall to just make everything all the more crisp when we do a lot of this stuff for online consumption, so it's nice. Perfect. Yeah, it sounds good. And I mentioned that... It had been a while since we caught up. You know, you built your own website and then you ended up founding a company called Winning Edits, which was involved in a lot of things, but basically a creative agency where you help people do all kinds of stuff. Connect the dots for me between Winning Edits and being the co-founder of SPI Media. Would love to. And actually, I will jump back one dot further to you and I connecting and, and doing some web projects. So yeah, I fell onto the internet, like I think a lot of us around, you know, the late aughts, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, and had a lot to say, especially in health and fitness. So I started a little personal blog project there and got a little bit of traction and was starting to explore again, like I think a lot of creators back then, you know, what it was to, to have an online presence and start to build a following and use the methods of the time around blogging predominantly and email marketing. And this was sort of even the heyday of like self-publishing and in the rise of Amazon KDP and that sort of stuff. You know, engaged with you, we learned a ton from you through like Think Traffic and some of those early days and, and had a great project together. But what I found to be particularly fascinating in that moment was not just being on the creator side, but was in fact the business side. So that did lead to then the creative agency winning edits. We specialized in content. So we did work with authors and eventually podcasters. And we were a little bit early in the podcasting space, much like say Pat, you know, who is now obviously a dear friend and business partner. So we were trying to do essentially content marketing as a service, as a like outsourced function for a lot of independents and even some small brands back in the time when, you know, this sort of language didn't really exist. And can I pause? you right there just for one second, because I'm really interested in this because I feel like there are a lot of people who go down the content marketing path and then for some reason or another feel like they're more attracted to the business side. They're more attracted to maybe helping others build a brand and not necessarily having to be the face of the brand. When you were running Winning Edits, were you doing most of the actual content creation? Did you have a team? What was that like? And what was your role there? I was the sole founder. I didn't have a business partner. And then I did staff into it. So I initially started working with freelancers on contract to augment you know, myself. I was doing a lot of the creation. I, I love being a creator. I think of myself actually as a creator. I do 
identify as such from a vision standpoint, strategy down all the way to the writing. I guess writing is actually my more preferred method of being a creator. Audio podcasting would be second. I'm not a huge fan of video personally, but because again, that's, I guess, just me uh, and every creator kind of gets us a, a feel for their own interests and their own channels that they prefer. Yeah. And I, I, I'm the same way. I'd probably rank mine in that order as well. Yeah. So for winning edits, a lot of the work, especially in the first couple of years, you know, was either me by myself or I started to build a small team around me, but on a contract workforce. But I love uh, team building. It was a part of my enterprise career before I went out and started my own ventures. So I invested a lot of time and energy into that, eventually started to hire in on salary. So W-2 and all of these things that might sound boring and even, I guess, unsexy at the surface. But to me, who's someone that does really self-identify as a servant leadership and that whole kind of body of work, body of knowledge kind of around that term, I like to provide and create jobs, you know, for other people that are interesting, uh, high impact, rewarding and stable jobs uh, to be able to provide healthcare benefits and all these other things, which again, a lot of creators, a lot of things which kind of go out the window when you're an entrepreneur or a freelancer. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and maybe for, you know, creators and community builders listening to this are like, this stuff doesn't sound at all interesting, but I would argue that it should be. I was really compelled to building a culture myself, you know, through the company that is a community. And then we can play out our own passions and pursuits, our own opinions on, you know, the internet and on content, galvanize that, you know, internally and be able to bring that to bear for an amazing array of creators that we worked with sort of, again, across the spectrum of, of mediums and channels, you know, on the internet involved in some really fantastic, challenging, uh, impactful projects, you know, what turned into at least a seven year venture. So winning at its lifespan was about seven years, a little bit more than seven years before Pat and I merged our companies together. And then, you know, that's getting to the, the next major dot of, you know, SPI media and how it was formed. Got it. And so Pat was one of your major clients at the time, or Smart Passive Income was one of your major clients. You got more and more involved together. And then how does this come about? Like, how do you go from working with each other in a, you know, a service provider kind of role, a partnership on some projects to deciding that you want to merge things together and really kind of take over co-leadership of this new entity? I'll admit that it wasn't by design. I got into winning. It started to grow really well. It was a sustainable-based business. A lot of agencies aren't. I tried to grow it very slowly, where it's, again, that's kind of countercultural to at least traditional agency mentality, where you burn a lot of people out. It's almost trying to achieve SaaS-level growth, but just with like burning people out, it doesn't really work that way. I have friends that have been a part of those traditional agency cultures, and they're awful. So anyway, uh, yeah, it wasn't really by design. I didn't have an exit strategy or game plan you know, in the first year or two. What emerged you know, very seriously serendipitously and harmoniously with Pat, because he was one of our first clients, not the first. But Pat always gave us the most creative latitude, me and then eventually my team that I was building, to have impact on vision and strategy. He was very open to feedback. We increasingly just grew and grew in terms of the responsibilities that we were taking on from him while he was growing and while the brand of SPI was growing. So it was almost like there was a mirrored sort of parallel universe happening together where you know we had opportunities to test out new concepts, new strategies, new things because Pat gave us, again, the latitude to do that. And he was receptive and let us push the envelope. Then we could play that forward with other clients. It was, again, very harmonious. And it got to a point where Pat and I became close personal friends, you know, um, I became Uncle Matt to his kids, you know, that that sort of thing. And so I knew deeply without maybe sharing and revealing too, too much, but like where Pat wanted to go and what maybe fears and concerns he had about growing a business and started to kind of just even operate as a pseudo business partner, even though I wasn't one, at least formally. So yeah, fast forward to, I guess, around year six or so, you know, at least again, in the chronology of winning edits. And even though the business was healthy and growing and sustainable, 
if anyone is a service you know pro for that length of time, especially if you have an agency, you do start to kind of wonder like, oh, is this my career forever? Like what happens next? So I wouldn't say I was like burned out, but I was starting to see like, okay, I think I can do more here. I've been behind the, the scenes of SPI for now forever, it feels like. And even though most people don't know my name and that's totally fine because I actually like being private and sort of a you know secret weapon that most people don't know about. I still felt really invested in the brand homes in a way that it was mine because I had me and my team had infused so much into it over the years. So all of that together, I just kind of sat pat down one day and kind of bent the knee and was like, you know, proposal wise. So like, hey, like, why don't we just kind of do this thing? Like, I'm, I've already helped you like build out strategic visions and plans and executive models and budgets, you know, for him in a way that, again, I'm not hired to do that. I'm just your friend and basically helping as a business partner. So like kind of painted that vision for him for what we could do, you know, more together as a formal kind of partnership and kind of a part that, that idea. And he saw it. And I mean, it was arguably probably the easiest deal in like the history of mergers and acquisitions formally. So it was like, yeah, just, it was so easy. So we did that at the end of 2018. And people may not know this, but Pat Flynn was the only employee in his business up until that point. There's an episode of the Smart Passive Income podcast, 354, I was just listening to earlier today, where he and you are sort of revealing all of this at the early part of 2019. And it's fascinating. One of the things that I was really interested in is this tension between the stuff that you alluded to earlier that might feel a little boring to some business owners versus the more pizzazz kind of creative stuff, you know, being on camera, uh, you know, Pat just finished up wrapped up doing 365 days of live streams on YouTube, which is like just a marathon. I couldn't believe that he pulled that off. And then here you are behind the scenes doing a lot of the important, but maybe not quite as sexy work of building a company. And there's a real tension for entrepreneurs a lot of times having to do both and trying to maintain both of those things. It's really easy to be drawn to one side or the other, I would say, and to over-focus on one thing. You know, you can focus too much on the mechanics of building a business and putting all the things in place and kind of lose track of the creative side, or you can dive too deeply into the creative side and not really be paying attention to the longer-term, sustainable, foundational kind of things that you need to be doing to build an important business. And it sounds like you two have really found a marriage, because that's what a business partnership is in a lot of ways, a marriage between the two where you're able to focus on all of the fundamentals and he's able to focus more on being in front of the camera, in front of the microphone, that sort of thing. Does that sum things up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, quite elegantly. It really is a marriage, and for folks that have you know, a spouse or a partner, then you know that it's not always awesome. There are moments of disagreement. There are moments when my energy is low and I need to count on Pat to kind of, you know, pull me back up and I hopefully can have, uh, and we do have, you know, the safe space where I can kind of step into that with him and, you know, share something that I'm struggling with and, and he can pull me back up and then vice versa, especially when you grow and not just like growth of email subscribers and Twitter followers and now Clubhouse followers and, and all of these things. The growth is truly challenging, especially when, uh, as we have deliberately, continued to invest a lot of that growth into our team. So, you know, the team came over with me just to kind of say that, you know, from winning edits, we've hired into the team. So, so the team is larger 
And we invest a lot in culture uh, in a lot of different ways. We carve out time for conversations and meetings that are not like project specific, but we're investing in the attitudes and behaviors and leadership practices of you know the folks on the team. We're debating things that are sensitive. We even recently chose not to pursue a pr- particular promotion with a particular individual just because there was some tension even internally across the company, not even just between Pat and me around, you know, certain language tied into a brand that this promotion would have uh, required. So we have to step through these things very, very carefully. We have to have, if anyone is listening and, you know, really loves learning just about leadership and maybe reads a Harvard Business Review and and kind of that caliber of publication, you know, a lot of studies uh, in Google and a lot of mainstream larger companies have invested in this, you know, reveal that psychological safety is one of the most important kind of leadership practices that you can foster within a team, a community as well, you know, creating that safe space. So Pat and I, you know, do that first and navigate these. It's not that it's tension every day, but, but there's... It, it is false. It is it is a fiction to think that if you want to do anything, I, I think of any remarkable you know size or impact that won't be tension along the word, there will be. Your role there reminds me a little bit of Barrett Brooks, who was part of the Fizzle team for a number of years and now is the COO over at ConvertKit. And he thinks and breathes, you know, operational metrics, but also culture of the company, all that kind of stuff. And I love talking to him about those things. And actually, I believe in the chronology of the Fizzle show, he was on the episode right before this one, (laughs) if I recall correctly. So Matt, I would love to talk about online communities, about membership communities. And I'd love to compare notes a little bit because over at SPI, you all have launched something you call SPI Pro recently. Tell us about what's the pitch for SPI Pro? What does someone get when they sign up for that? That's actually a great segue from the last talking point, which is first and foremost, it is a safe place. And I can describe in a moment maybe how we, in fact, foster that safety. But it's a safe place for you know enterprising small business owners and creator types that aren't pure beginners or maybe more sort of in an advanced beginner. They have some traction already to come and really find the level of professional connections and networks that they're going to need to really pressurize their own ideas and make decisions being a central uh, point to advance their business. The skill of decision-making, I think, is tremendously underrated, under-discussed, under-reported for entrepreneurs. You know, what's the right next decision? How do you sequence decision-making you know, that is strategic, that is intentional with your boundaries, your work-life boundaries, your operating capital, meaning just money. How much money do you have to try to grow your business boundaries to your energy, your relationship equity, you know, in partnerships and and whatnot else. So first and foremost, SPI Pro is a gated private special community where that safety exists to come and ask the hard questions of each other of us, where we reveal, you know, how we have struggled to grow, but but grown well, how we have navigated certain tension points, whether it's a creative thing, um, an online course product thing, how we hire, how we spend money. We offer opportunities to have those conversations either asynchronously through the community or through any of our kind of live-ish, you know, through Zoom or whatever else kind of programming. So that is number one. That was our thesis statement for what would be the most attractive, the most genuine exchange of value, because it is also, I should say, a paid community. It is not free. So the value exchange, we wanted to root in that level of discourse and that level of relationship and trust building beyond other components of SPI Pro. You know, on the bottom of the list, is content, like exclusive content, free content. We're not free, but it's it's included like with the membership. So like we have components of that, but when I was initially architecting out the model for this and pitching Pat on it and, you know, blending in his ideas and we rounded it out, I think we just had some good perspective. We had good 
reference points very much candidly, you and Fizzle and others around, okay, how do we want to do this? Certainly on our own terms and our own way, but like with proven methodologies. So that's how we did it. I launched it. Well, we started working on it and this is kind of, I don't know if it's a funny story or in some way instructional. We are working on this well before the pandemic hit. We got lucky honestly, with just how that started in terms of our R&D process and where we were such that we were going to launch it July of 2020. That was the plan before the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, you know, we were just in the right place at the right time. So we exceeded our growth metrics on launch, our initial kind of, you know, members coming in. We have an application on the front end to even get an invitation. And we actually turn away a lot of folks because again, we're trying to cultivate and be very intentional with the folks that do come on the inside. And then that's something I would love to dive into a little bit. I noticed that. I'm curious about the decisions there. But before we do, so just to kind of summarize, and in case people aren't familiar with the business overall, Smart Passive Income for a long time has sold individual courses. Pat has published a number of books over the years. There are all kinds of revenue streams, but I don't believe prior to SPI Pro that you had any kind of recurring community membership. We did not. One of the big components of even the vision going kind of back to me bending the knee with Pat and us doing this was not maybe very narrowly like this idea of, of SPI Pro like at that time, but with this more intentional set of, okay, we need to build healthier recurring methods and models into the business that, you know, we want to put community as a concept, even though that term is getting used in so many different ways now, which maybe we'll unpack that in a moment, but, you know, more at the center of the business model, not just as like a throwaway term as, as some synonym for audience building, which a lot of people do use as some like bolt on offering or some kind of frankly shallow and more vanity driven sort of thing. It's like, no. Right. Having some forums off in the corner that don't get used and and forgotten about or or just adding some chat or something or a Facebook group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or just calling Twitter community, which Twitter is a community. I'm not trying to bash Twitter, but it's, you know, there's so many different ways to start analyzing and unpacking and synthesizing what in the heck the term community means. And yeah. And for me, community at the end of the day is connections between people uh, around a shared topic. And I think when people use the word community, a lot of times they're thinking about the technology and the forum or the chat or whatever mechanism it is that people connect. But in reality, the community happens in different places. It happens in the live events. It happens in the forums. It happens, you know, when you send an email to everyone that is summarizing something that someone else did in the community. It happens at live events, all kinds of places. But it's really about those connections and relationships, wouldn't you say? Oh, 100%. And even at a like atomic level. So it is the magic of the peer to peer, like the one to one connection is something that I could and probably should at some point like write blog posts on like it's so I think under still undervalued and underrated because everything is big. Now everything wants to be big. We want to pursue all sorts of growth and mass scale. And I think we've lost I'm kind of just saying this as I don't know, in industry sort of analysis. I think a lot of us in general lose or at risk of losing that that sensitivity uh, and attention to that one-to-one relationship. And not just like me with some member of our of SPI Pro or Pat with some member of SPI Pro, but themselves and trying to be a bit of the connective tissue, you know, within that sort of an ecosystem that allows those connections to happen and foster like, holy crap, I just met my future business partner, right? Like that sort of magic is what we're going for. It's almost like if you throw a dinner party and you curate the people that you invite and you set the stage so that hopefully some of your best friends can get to know each other and grow their own relationships. And it's one of those things. Some people really value being a connector and putting people together and creating the safe space or the right environment for those connections to happen. Precisely. Yeah. 
I, I share that completely. And tell us, I guess, how has the launch of SPI Pro gone? You came into it with this thesis, this idea. I'm sure that you had some business goals for it as well. What has been surprising to you? How long has it been up and available? About a year now? Not even, at least as of this recording, a full year. So we launched it in July of last year. So we're about nine months into it so far. We exceeded our goal at launch in terms of number of applications, number of invites based on those applications. And at this point, yeah, it remains one of the healthiest kind of components to the business when you're just looking at like your P&L and you're looking at the numbers. I think the thing that's been most surprising has been, honestly, like it's another business metric, but like churn is way low. Like we didn't really know. I had certainly forecasts built around like how many members would drop off. Uh, we do have a monthly option as well as an annual option in terms of the billing, but we have you know low single digits, maybe mid single digits, around like five percent fluctuating on average over the last you know nine months, and that's really good even at a SaaS level. That's excellent, and I would say just for people who are uninitiated in in terms of like churn and SaaS businesses and so on. If you're talking about the number of people who are churning on a regular basis, not revenue, but, you know, a business like a really, really strong growing SaaS business might be in the low single digits. Netflix, I believe, is like two point something percent. So people stick around for, you know, three years or something on average at Netflix. But with general membership communities, you can easily see double digits. You can easily see 10%, 12%, 15%, something like that. And even at Fizzle, you know, we've kind of bumped around as high as 12% at some points, as low as maybe 6 or 7%. And it really kind of depends on how many people are coming in the door and, you know, where they're coming from and all that kind of stuff. But 5% is tremendous and means that People are sticking around for, uh, I don't know what that is. One divided by 0.05 is 20 months on average, which is which is really great. Yeah. And I'll confess that, again, we have nine months of, of data. So like we're still, I think, relatively early. But other indications just around, I should maybe quickly mention that we use a platform called Circle to foster and host you know this community. So when we look at like their engagement metrics that they can you know, present to us uh, and we see daily active users versus monthly active users and kind of compute those ratios from what we know to be true in terms of you know, to some degree, those being standard metrics in the industry, like they seem really healthy based on what we're seeing on the inside. And all that has been able to translate for me to feel confident in investing in that team. So we've hired two full-time employees, you know, into that team. We call it the community experience team. So the CX team. Oh, and I should actually say three. So at the end of last year, I acquired one of my friend's companies, Jay Klaus, who's a fellow Columbus guy like me here in Ohio. And his quick story, he's a podcaster on his own right. He has a great show, but the, the real synergy that we had had, and I brought him on in on contract, even to help round out some of the final phases of SPI Pro before we launched it with a lens of like, oh, if this goes well, if he really likes working with us, et cetera, maybe I'll pitch him on this acquisition. He had a company called Unreal Collective that was essentially kind of cohort based. It's not a course, but it's more cohort-based just training. And this was a part of our vision around community. SPI Pro and what we have right now and everything we've been talking about, this is genuinely like the first inning. We have an expansive vision, different sorts of training and programming offerings. And I needed a leader like Jay to kind of be on the inside. So made him the pitch. He came in on full-time starting this past January with Seminole again last year and launching and, and nurturing the first you know few months of, of SPI Pro. So we just will continue to invest so long as that return is there. Both the economic return on the business side, but as well as just the good will, energy, creativity return that we see and foster out of the community. 
Taking care of employees has never been more important. For years, Gusto's been helping more than 100,000 small business owners run payroll, offer benefits, onboard new employees, and more. They call it the People Platform. And it doesn't just look nice, it works. Your payroll taxes are filed, deductions are calculated, and your team gets paid. You can even offer health insurance and 401ks. Get three months free after your first payroll when you go to gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. I'm glad you bring that up. I think the danger in seeing uh, building a community and earning recurring revenue as an entrepreneur, the danger in that, I think, sometimes is that you see it as a silver bullet and don't necessarily recognize how much care and feeding and attention needs to go into fostering community and having people that are in there answering questions, creating experiences for people and so on. So I love that you call it the community experience team. That's great. I'm curious about if we can go back to churn and the application process just a little bit. I wonder if your success on the churn front is partly due to that application process, because there's a big question that people need to have, whether you're selling a one-off course or you're selling a membership of some sort. And that is, do you just open the doors and let anyone in? Or do you have some sort of a, a gate that people need to go through? And when I was checking out SPI Pro in prepped for this call, I noticed that there's a application process, you know, and when you look for SPI Pro, it says applications are being accepted, that sort of thing. And I think there was a period coming up where you're going to be reviewing apps or something like that. What went through your mind in terms of using that model and what are the pros and cons that you found so far of requiring people to apply? And then also, if you don't mind sharing, what are the criteria? Like, how do you actually deny someone entry and why would you do that? The first thing I'll say is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, in my opinion, and experience on this. So because we have chosen to deploy an application process doesn't mean that every membership community should have one of those. It felt right for us because we did want to screen out, I guess, the people that just weren't ready for it yet that were maybe too early in the process of considering, you know, what it was like to kind of go online and, and try to start, you know, a small business, internet-based business. We also wanted to screen out too advanced uh, sometimes that we were trying to find a certain sweet spot on this kind of quote-unquote entrepreneurial journey so that when folks really did start to gather together and meet one another and interact, they felt like they were in a relatively same spot in time, right? Not identical with enough variance. And it's hard to codify that completely by way of an application, but we tried. So, you know, we screened for, you know, such, I guess, kind of nuts and bolts things around income levels right now, you know, what you sell. So that's a, I guess, a section of the application. Our application's not short. If you've taken a peek at it, like, I mean, I don't think it takes you 20 minutes, but it's it's also not like three questions. Ultimately, we have something of an algorithm, not super crazy, like hardcore AI science, but like we have an algorithm built that then kind of buckets applicants into three buckets. You either like automatically pass, you automatically are rejected, or you kind of go into a quarantine in the middle. And then folks that are in the quarantine then are manually reviewed by Mindy, by me, by a combination of folks on the CX team. And then we'll make, you know, human level decisions on like, we'll, we'll tip it, you know, one way or the other. I'm curious in your thinking of implementing an application process, how much of it was driven by a desire to make something exclusive and premium because you know that people are vetted. There's a bit of a velvet rope kind of feel to it. And then how much fear was there that by putting up a gate, you would end up actually onboarding many fewer people because 
there's just a couple of extra hurdles involved. There's more friction. Maybe people lose interest. Maybe people decide not to apply because it's too long. Tell us a little bit about the tension there. I would say all of those were ingredients into the stew, but the more prominent, I'll say fear, and the more prominent concern and area of debate was, holy crap, if we don't have a thoughtful application process, we're going to get hit with an avalanche. And can we deliver on the promise if we get hit with an avalanche? Can we actually foster and hold that ground, right? Hold that space in the way that we are messaging, you know, that we are that has value and integrity to it. And we didn't feel that we could or, or that we should try, that it would be too risky, especially in the first experience or in the immediate aftermath. If we had thousands of people flooding in, then we couldn't we couldn't handle it. The team wasn't large enough. Jay wasn't in yet full-time. I hadn't hired my full-time community manager yet because I wanted to get it out the door first, learn from that experience, get a month of feedback or so. While I was recruiting, I, I was doing that you know, in parallel, but I didn't have J who is now Jillian, the full-time community manager in yet. So that was the predominant kind of decision point was like, man, if we screw this up, it's toast, right? It's like you don't achieve um, escape velocity, your stage one rocket blows up and you're, you're done. Right. Community is something that you really, really have to pay attention to because it's a bit like starting a, a campfire, right? And in the beginning, a lot of times you need to pay a lot of attention, make sure that you've got dry kindling and so on to get it going. And then eventually the community can kind of take over. But in your case, it's a bit of the opposite. And you were worried that there was going to be a little too much gasoline and that you were going to catch your house on fire and then all would be lost. In the case of Fizzle, what we did early on was we actually did uh, rolling imitations of batches of people a hundred at a time. And we would say, you know, this is charter member cohort number one and allow people in and let that settle out, you know, let everybody meet each other and then roll another in before we ended up opening it up in general. I will say that by not having, we don't have an application process at Fizzle, by not having one, we definitely have gotten people who are fairly advanced and feel like there's not enough in there for them. And that's our fault if we don't explain that well enough up front in terms of who it's for. And then also we do get people that are at the very beginning and they end up asking a lot of questions that turn off the other community members who have been around for a long time and have more experience. So I can understand that I, and I can see how that might work. I, of course, would be concerned a little bit about the friction going in to get people to sign up. But on the other hand, it could feel a little more valuable once you actually get in because you've gone through that process. And again, that may be why your churn is lower because people feel like I've gone through this process now. I want to stick around. You know, it's like we are considering joining an athletic club in um, Portland that has this really long process. You have to be recommended by other members. And then there's a big down payment, sort of like a country club. And once you're in, you're not going to leave because you've gone through the ringer in order to join. So I understand that. If I can maybe bolt on to that, that little anecdote. So here in Columbus, there's like a little uh, speakeasy, nothing like you'd find in like a New York or something like that. But yeah, similar experience where you had to be recommended by current member. You had to go through an application process. The actual physical ambiance, you know, the environment, like when you go inside, there's like a genuinely like false door. You know, you step into a vestibule with like an old school telephone and you like pick up the phone and like rings in the back and they like knock out the false door and you walk in. So all that fun stuff. And it's like, okay, how can we infuse some of that? Yes, it's special. Yes, it's exclusive. You were mentioning that a moment ago, you know, around like the velvet rope stuff. So that's true, but it's not gimmicky. 
right? Like we've done it because we're trying to cultivate a certain experience and then hold that space and be able to deliver on that commitment. And that I think is where it, you know, the term around community and memberships becomes quickly problematic for other folks that are, this is not even a secondary, it's a more tertiary afterthought around like, oh, they just want to get on the community bandwagon because that's the invoke term right now. So they try to spin something up quickly and they don't, they don't have the 360 view on what that experience should be and, and how to support it and nurture it. And, and I think that's where the term community and for those of us like you and I think me that care a ton about this space, like the term could become toxified by this other segment of, you know, the Internet that's trying to do this if they abuse that term and then that connotation gets flipped. Of course. And then the rest of us have to figure out some new terms, something else to call it. You know, the other thing I want to point out that you mentioned, at least implicitly, is that people can tell when something has been bolted on, whether it's community or the velvet rope policy, I think people can tell when, for example, you know, you mentioned that there's this actual vetting that's going on and some manual review of people and so on. There's something happening there behind the scenes for the application process versus there's a sniff test, I think, that everybody has. And they can tell when scarcity is kind of manufactured for its own purpose. So that's important when you make these decisions to make sure that there's some actual mechanism behind it as opposed to just something that's added there. So, you know, you mentioned that community now is really more than ever shaping the future of creator-based business models and strategies. What did you mean by that? And are you referring just to people kind of giving a nod to community in, in every project? Or what do you see in terms of like community first businesses? What's happening out there in the world of community-based businesses? First, I'm not the brainchild maybe of that thought. I'm definitely a believer. I'm, I'm buying that messaging. A lot of much smarter people out there are saying this that I agree with. I think the thing that's central to me as the leader of the team in the company and, and, and trying to create and foster and then teach what we practice ourselves around a sustainable, profitable business. We don't have venture capital. You know, we don't have outside money of any kind, et cetera. And I think most folks probably listening to this are trying to build a business in that way is this genuine nature-based system, or, or I dare say flywheel, even though that's a marketing term, of investing into your people, and then you learn from that in return. So like putting community in terms of the mechanics, the, the safe spaces, central to the business model is essentially me in-housing my R&D process from the people that we want to choose to serve. And we can have open and honest conversations, not just within the privacy of, of our team and culture, but now largely, or at least larger than the 12 people that I have on my team, you know, with Pat and I included, but now we have, you know, hundreds of people that are basically extended team members, not just people on my email list or people on my, on my Twitter stream, even though, again, people surface a lot of great insights through those channels. Again, I'm not trying to knock it, but I think in the way that we're trying to approach community, again, as centric to the business model is we can harvest really actionable business intelligence that is I think the gold standard or should be for, I think, a lot of folks like us that are trying to, to build these sorts of businesses. That's what I care about most. That's what I will wait on my, my little scale more than anything else. This is what I need to hear in terms of then fostering in the right next decision, next year's strategic plan. Where do we want to invest? What programs work? Which ones didn't work or, or at least underperformed? And we need to potentially shelve that or completely retool this thing. So I see that as our own incubation lab, you know, and that's why it has to be centered in my mind to these business models. I love this as a benefit. A lot of people don't think about this as a primary benefit, but you know, we, in terms of entrepreneurship, talk about the importance of getting close to your customers, especially in the early days when people have no idea if they're onto something, if they are pursuing building something that people are going to care about. And so the way to solve that is to get as close as possible 
as you can to your customers. And in the old days, this would be focus groups and other things that were sort of artificial. In more modern times, you know, you get a sense for how people feel, like you said, by being on your email list. But really now we have these almost concentric circles of influence. And at the core of that is you and your business partner, and then you and your team. And I love now that there's this sense of ownership that you give people in the community over the business, the offerings, the ethos, all this kind of stuff. And it's now not just SPI is a business owned by its, its owners and shareholders, but SPI is something that other people in this next concentric ring out care about so much that you have to check in with them, right? And see what they think about decisions that you're going to make. And it just gives you this laboratory to be able to test and experiment with on real users, on people with real skin in the game before you, you know, make any big decisions. And, and that's so valuable. And in a way, as valuable as the revenue that you're making from these people, because it's really about the long-term health and sustainability of the business. In part, one of those benefits is the de-risking nature of then some of these business decisions. If if I have enough proof points and the speed with which I can get that feedback, because time continues to be, I think, an underrated element of you know making decisions. Yeah, like that is so valuable, you know, to me and to Pat. And then being able to think cross-channel around, okay, we build something, how do we market it quickly to get some validation? Uh, look at the channels we have, starting with our pro community. Uh, increasingly, we kind of go there first. Again, by design, this is our kind of in-house R&D laboratory where we can hear and respond to different things we might be launching that that is free or commercialized. You know, whether it's a new strata for SPI Pro, which we're working on, that's in, in the laboratory, actually. That's more than just like this base layer membership that we have. So that's one thing that's in the workshop. Maybe to zoom out, you know, training in general is where we're spending a lot of our time in terms of the thought process, in terms of how we build this. Right now, I'm going through Wes and Goggin. Corbett, you're familiar with Wes and Goggin. Wes helped uh, Seth create Alt-MBA, that program. So like this, this kind of CBC cohort-based, you know, course model that's really catching fire. Tiago Forte over at Forte Lab, to, they do this really well as an example. You know, these are really almost community-driven education programs. They're getting called courses, and, and they are, but they're training. But they wouldn't be what they are without the community. It's interesting. It's it's almost as if we're we're coming back to a better representation, better digital online representation of what naturally happens in person. You know, it's if if you think about, you know, even way back to the old philosophy schools in Greece, like long, long time ago, they were places where people got together and discussed things. And of course there was a teacher or many teachers, but Many of the students went on themselves to become teachers because they were so steeped in everything that was happening. And then when we moved everything online, what happened naturally in a classroom was no longer because now it's just you devouring material without, you know, the actual side discussions and questions and all that kind of stuff. And so people are figuring out ways to bolt that stuff on. And the cohort aspect of it, I think, is just the idea of pushing people through an experience all at the same time. So they're all experiencing things at the same time and they can support each other and so on. And it does seem like the future and more tools are needed to make that happen. And I know that's what Wes and Gagan are, are doing that, that you mentioned. Matt, thank you. This has been really instructive and I hope people listening to this are, are getting a good sense of what goes behind the scenes to create a successful community and why 
you need to not just think of it sort of as an afterthought or bolt it on. Because if you do that, and I've seen this happen many, many times, people kind of think, oh, I'm going to make a course and oh, I should probably bolt a community in there. And then they don't realize how much work it is. It doesn't do as well as they had hoped. And nobody's happy, neither the customers nor the business owners. So it makes a lot of sense to think of this in these terms that you've talked about. And I especially love taking away this idea of the community experience and having a team of community experience people. And, you know, for those who don't have the resources that an SPI might have, remember that the community itself is probably hungry to help and to pitch in and and to see the community succeed. And a lot of times the best place to look for help is amongst community members and an old standard way of keeping forums and and other things vibrant was just to nominate community members as moderators. They were called mods in, in the old days. And these were people with special powers to be able to go in and clean things up and so on. But, you know, you can do that in some cases in an unpaid way, or maybe people get special perks or a free membership or something. But you can start out by, you know, empowering people to, to help out even before you might have enough revenue to hire someone. Okay, I want to touch on two more things. The first is you mentioned, and this is kind of a side uh, conversation, you mentioned the underappreciated time value of making decisions. I want to dive into that real quick because it's something I've experienced myself recently. And then finally, I want to hear about how people can get into the SPI universe and, and where you recommend that they go first. So the time value of making decisions. I sat in a very paralyzed kind of way for a couple of years recently. And I felt like I was waiting for the perfect information to come around. And next thing I know, I had not made a decision for a very long time. And that I think was wasted time. So when people are, are thinking about making decisions, like what needs to go into it? And it sounds like you've been studying decision making recently. Studying, yes, for sure. And we are practicing that more than just like reading a book about it. The thing that continues to just impress me by folks that I admire that are making decisions is that they're working in public with their decisions, especially, you know, online where there's enough humility there, but at the same time, enough conviction, you know, to the work and what they're trying to do. The unity of that humility and conviction results in the decision that I'm going to put this out there and I am inviting of debate. I am inviting of even disagreement, not to just be provocative for provocative sake, but I'm trying to genuinely sharpen my own thinking and go deeper and not just kind of exist at the surface of some thinking. That's where I do think a lot of people get stuck or experience some level of indecision or paralysis is at the surface because there is so much information you can consume and learn and keep learning and keep learning and so many teachers and educators and YouTube channels and podcasts now, right? Like you can, you can stay at that surface for forever and do nothing. And feel like you're doing something, but not actually. Right. Yeah. So the only way to actually, in my humble opinion here, I guess, get good to sharpen skill is to start making decisions and experience that tension of forward momentum. At some point, you'll find a slipstream, right, where it gets easier, it gets better, and you start to create a wake. And within that wake, then you can foster your own team and community. You can start to then increasingly have more fluidity to your business practices, right? You have to create that slipstream, you know, for everything that comes behind you. And if you are the founder of your business or co-founder, if you are that leader, like you have to, in fact, be the one that, that hits that that headwind and go there and create that, that slipstream, that depth, like 
kind of mixing metaphors here, but so that's how I see decision-making, right? Is this, you have to have the humility to know that you're not going to be perfect and you're, you're going to experience some level of discomfort, even pain, but like the conviction that like, no, this is the right general direction. So put those two together and go. It's a little like in investing terms, uh, trying to time the market versus having time in the market. Well, right. Well, okay. I'm going to stay there. So not my idea, not by a long shot, but I don't know if it's Warren Buffett's idea or who came up with it originally, but the dollar cost averaging model, like it's, I'm a believer in it. I've used it successfully for what it's worth. And it's the idea of like putting little ships like out in an ocean rather than like one gigantic ship all at once out on like a market current, right? Because if you just go all in with this, you know, a set of capital at one point and try to time it, then you're going to ride that, that volatility and that's all you got. But if you chunk that out and you have a bunch of little ships that you're putting out there on a lot of different moments, that evens out your volatility a lot. Yes. And, you know, a lot of this success is just feeling comfortable with uh, making decisions, with making moves and so on. And the real battle is kind of between your ears, no matter what form of entrepreneurship. Matt, thank you again so much. If people want to dive into SPI, to the world of smart passive income, where is the best place for them to get started? It's still at smartpassiveincome.com in full. We don't have the three-letter.com quite yet. It'd be fun to get there someday. We just launched a new homepage, so it has the, the new SPI Pro community kind of front and center on the homepage. People can learn about it, apply. If they want to go straight to that page and learn more, it's uh, smartpassiveincome.com slash pro forward slash pro. That's the best place to go. Awesome. I have been a huge fan of everything that SPI has done, that Pat Flynn has done over the years, and it's been fun watching you and your career grow and advance, and I love seeing the two of you pair up, so I know a lot of awesome things are in store for you. Thanks for sharing what you've learned so far. Thanks for being a guest here. And for people listening to this, as always, you can find the show notes over at fizzleshow.co. This was episode number 383. Our guest was Matt Gartland from SPI. And until next time, I'm Corbett Barr. Thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. 